This is the first podcast episode in a three-part series. In this episode, we focus specifically on prostate cancer. This podcast is an initiative of Core2Ed and supported by an independent educational grant from AstraZeneca and Amoy Diagnostics. Core2Ed is honored to introduce to you the oncology brothers, Rahul and Rohit Gosain, who will be moderators of today's discussion, and two internationally renowned experts, Dr. Alexander Wyatt, GU cancer genomics expert, and Dr. Petros Grivas, medical oncologist. Hello, everyone. I am Rahul Gosain. And I'm Rohit Gosain. And we are Oncology Brothers. It is exciting time to be practicing as a general medical oncologist as we get to appreciate all the advancements and see this field move ahead, particularly when it comes to precision medicine. However, we face some real challenges, including how to select the right biomarker, be it for prostate cancer or lung cancer or ovarian cancer. And this podcast will focus on pre-analytical phase challenges and the importance of understanding the pathology for prostate cancer to make the right decision for our patients. For this, we're joined by Dr. Alexander Wyatt, Professor in Urologic Sciences at the University of British Columbia, and Dr. Petros Grievous, Clinical Director of the GU Cancer Program at the University of Washington. Alex, Petros, welcome. Thank you, Rahul. Thank you, Rahit. Before we start, let's clarify this term, precision medicine, as that can be very confusing. And before we dive into any further, Alex, if you don't mind talking about what is germline and somatic mutations? Yes, of course. Uh, pleasure to be here and, and thank you for the kind introduction. I think it's um, you know, really critical that we set up the right terminology here. So a germline mutation is an alteration that's inherited from your parents. So it's actually present in every cell in your body. Whereas a somatic alteration is something that's only in the cancer cells. And the vast majority of things that we study are only in the cancer cells, but those germline mutations are pretty important as well. Alex, thank you. Let's continue with this and take this a little further. Petros, as a treating physician, what are the various biomarkers in prostate cancer we should test for and what tests can be used for this information? Thank you so much. Uh, I appreciate always the opportunity to working with you and discussing with you. And of course, uh, having Alex here is fantastic. In terms of the biomarkers in prostate cancer, there's, of course, a lot uh, of data coming up in the last few years. And those data sets have been informing the way we try to use biomarkers in clinical practice. Uh, I start by saying that uh, with the uh, uh, FDA approval of PARP inhibitors, for example, Olaparib, based on the profound trial. There is also Rucaparib uh, based on a different trial. And of course, we have seen data with both uh, PARP inhibitors as monotherapy. And uh, we saw data, for example, uh, from Dr. Hussein on the profound trial before. And we saw Dr. Bryce presenting more recently uh, the Rucaparib versus Taxane trial. And of course, we more recently had three clinical trials looking at the combination strategy of a novel antiandrogen plus a PARP inhibitor very quickly for the audience, those three trials include the PROPEL study, and this was abiraterone plus olaparib. We had the magnitude trial with abiraterone niraparib, and more recently, Dr. Agarwal presented the TALAPRO2 trial with enzaltamide talazoparib. So we have overall many data sets, again, trying to evaluate 
the efficacy and safety of PARP inhibition, either as monotherapy or in combination with novel antiandrogen and uh, metastatic prostate cancer, specifically in this castration-resistant uh, prostate cancer setting. And uh, overall, I would say the important impact, I would say, on the testing is that we need to test for uh, DNA repair gene alterations, or to be more precise in terminology, DNA damage response in alterations. Also relevant to check for something which is very rare in prostate cancer, which is MSI high status. This is probably less than 5%, I would say, but uh, if it's present, I think it definitely opens the door for checkpoint inhibition, uh, which uh, MSI high is probably one of the most robust biomarkers for checkpoint inhibition efficacy across the board. And you can argue that high TMB may or not be relevant. There's a debate about that, especially in prostate cancer. There is a kind of across the tumor type syndication based on high TMB. Um, I think MSI high is probably a more robust biomarker by TMB, but TMB is something we usually almost always get when we send an NGS platform. So uh, just to wrap up this long uh, answer here, DNA damage response genes should be tested. Again, look at the at the approval label of Olaparib as a guide uh, and MSI high TMB are always important. Um, across tumor types, I would say. And obviously, other targets might be relevant for clinical trials if there are specific targets to look for individual genes. But I think in terms of clinical practice, these are the highlights. Sometimes people may order a broader gene platform uh, to look for other genes as well. Again, mainly to look at potential prognostic biomarkers uh, like PIT and loss, RB1, P53. However, those particular, the one I just mentioned, do not have a relevant uh, drug going after it right now, but we're doing clinical trials uh, trying to design therapeutics uh, uh, targeting uh, those molecules. Thank you so much for covering that important segment, Petros. So when you mentioned DNA repair genes, predominantly what we are talking about is BRCA1, BRCA2, where we have seen significant responsiveness with PARP inhibitors. And earlier and earlier, we are utilizing these drugs and many clinical trials are incorporating this data as well. Now, there are some trials, especially what Dr. Agarwal presented, where these drugs are performing without any DNA repair genes, which are not even part of genetic mutation or somatic mutations. It is exciting, but still more work needs to be done. Alex, from your perspective, what challenges are commonly experienced in prostate cancer biomarker testing that impacts the quality of these results? As Petros mentioned, there's, we're really focused on identifying these mutations in DNA damage repair genes. Now, they're only present in somewhere between 10% of patients and 25% of patients, depending on how many genes you're checking. Now, one of the key challenges is that, although, as Petros mentioned, um, there's a clear need for treatment selection in the castration-resistant setting to be testing, we also know that those mutations are important earlier in disease, both to tell you about prognosis, because something like a BRCA2 mutation is associated with a really aggressive disease, so bad prognosis and also about uh, hereditary cancer in other family members. So it's really important to test um, for germline mutations to find out if unaffected family members could be at risk of, say, breast or ovarian cancer. Um, so that kind of presents challenges because there's no single time point throughout the disease spectrum that you should trigger testing. And we typically think, okay, order a test as soon as you can, as soon as a patient is eligible to be tested in your jurisdiction, get it done. Um, but it means that I think, you know, there's a little bit of discretion used. Now, the biggest challenge 
is that because you want to look for both cancer-related mutations, those somatic changes, and the germline mutations, you really need to test tumor tissue um, because that carries both of those types of alterations. Now, in prostate, there's really only one predominant source of tissue, and that's a biopsy from first diagnosis. Um, and so I think as many can recognize, that's a, a small amount of tissue. Um, it's typically archival, so that means it's, it's been kept for many years, sometimes in a hospital drawer, not ideal conditions. And it may not necessarily represent uh, what we think of as the dominant metastatic lesion in a, in a man with disseminated disease. So really the main challenge is about access to tissue and whether that tissue is, is kind of of sufficient quality uh, for, for sampling and of sufficient um, representativeness, whether it represents the metastatic disease itself. Alex, thanks for touching on some very key uh, points. When we're talking about germline tissue, knowing that information is not only important for the patient sitting right in front of you, but that can change what's important for that family member that's right there for their patient. So knowing that information is important for the patient because yes, we're looking for more treatment options, but it makes a significant impact for that family as well. And then you brought up the tissue analysis. I also think it's important to recognize reducing the pre-analytical errors. These are the errors that occur before the analysis even happens, which can result in poor results overall. Alex, you touched a little on the storage or how to get these biopsies. For prostate cancer and biomarkers, is there something bare minimum that you expect from us to provide you so that you were able to use that tissue and give this information to us? So when we think about uh, prostate tissue, one of the challenges is that as kind of when you're at the point where you're, say, thinking about treatment selection for a patient with CRPC, um, you're not really in control of uh, that biopsy tissue necessarily, unless you're considering a fresh metastatic biopsy, which is reasonably unusual outside of a large academic center. Um, so what you've got to do is retrieve a tissue block as soon as you can. And um, so think about uh, testing as early as possible. And then ideally have a dedicated GU pathologist or a pathologist with significant experience um, looking at prostate cancer tissue um, to do that, to do the block review and then the sampling of tissue. Um, so prostate cancer, when it's in the prostate gland, um, is quite heterogeneous. Um, and there's often, uh, you know, lots of stroma, um, lots of non-cancer tissue, um, different regions of low and high grade disease. So it's really important that a pathologist selects what they can see as probably the dominant lesion in that in within the gland, so the highest grade, highest volume, highest tumor cellularity region. Because if that doesn't happen, um, you know, we can have problems with tissue insufficiency when we get to the actual test itself. Now, when you have this information, Alex, how often are these biomarker test failures and what is the real solution for this? Do you go after rebiopsy, especially when you're working with scant tissue and when you're dealing with elderly population here? Yeah, so when we look at trials uh, such as the profound trial that Petros mentioned, the failure rate for sort of testing prostate biopsy tissue with the types of tests that were available at the time was something in the range of 40%. Um, so that's a really high screen failure rate. Now, uh, many tests have tried to improve those over time. So there's others that kind of will accept a lower yield of DNA from the tissue or, or a lower tumor cellularity, but there's still a very significant failure rate. I don't know if Petros, you could speak to what's your experience in 
in kind of real world practice in terms of those failure rates. Great discussion. I agree with you that uh, overall, uh, it depends a lot on the actual tissue at the QSC. Of course, the you know you know better than me. Time to fixation, you know, especially over the years, pathologists have become better, I think, in handling those tissue and the shortening the time to fixation, and of course, trying to deal with a lot of analytical factors, right, that may impact the actual uh, adequacy and quality of material. And I think over the years, I think we're becoming better and better. Uh, and uh, another example which is relevant to the discussion is that conventionally over the years, we thought that bone biopsies were not amenable to tumor NGS, genomic testing. And I think more recently, we're realizing that at least uh, in some centers, again, depending on those analytical factors and also uh, uh, depending on uh, uh, what acid is being used for decalcification of the bone, uh, often, or at least much more often than before, we are now able to perform next-generation sequencing in both biopsies. Obviously, it's more difficult than the soft tissue or primary tumor of prostate, but it's uh, becoming more common. So overall, to answer Alex's question, I think it's becoming less and less of a problem not to have adequate tissue. I think most of the cases even if it's an archival tissue of a prior prostate biopsy or prostatectomy, most of those cases have adequate tissue and results seems to be interpretable. I have to go back and look at the literature to see of the failure rate, but anecdotally, I would say the vast majority of samples can be tested. And internally, Alex knows that because he's a major leader in the field. We have the UW Oncoplex study, which is an internally developed assay by Dr. Colin Pritchard and others at the University of Washington. And we have this precision oncology tumor board once a month. Obviously, these are selected cases that had enough material to to work with. Uh, But uh, just by talking to Colin and others, it seems that the the majority of those tissues uh, are amenable to testing. Now, I think it's important I keep hearing about uh, the right pathologist, tumor boards, getting our urologist to access the prostate gland, intervention radiologists going after the bone biopsy. This is a team approach. I really think it is so important to emphasize the multi-D approach when you're treating prostate cancer. Medicine is a team sport, oncology is a team sport, and prostate cancer management is a team sport. We need everybody on board. We need all hands on deck, as I say, and this includes, of course, uh, urologists, medical oncologists, radiation oncologists, pathologists, radiologists with expertise. And and as an example here, and Alex knows this, we have a multidisciplinary prostate cancer tumor board, uh, which is a, a clinic actually on every Thursday morning. And we see patients maybe with high risk localized prostate cancer or oligometastatic disease. Uh, we try to give the best experience to the patient with a one-stop shop, let's say, having all these different uh, uh, disciplines. Uh, at the same time, this offers significant multi-expertise and also interaction among them. And I think this uh, results in a great patient satisfaction and I believe in better patient care because you have the opportunity to, to interact in a timely manner. Obviously, uh, we have to be realistic and not every cancer center in the country, let alone in other countries with less resources, have that ability. And that opens the whole other issue of global oncology. But I think in areas where expertise are present, I definitely highly value the uh, importance of multidisciplinary and interdisciplinary prostate cancer care. I think one one like practical example of that is that for urologists, um, I've seen a trend 
when they're seeing a patient with presenting with metastatic disease, I think historically there would only be the thought that, okay, we'll, we'll just take one biopsy core from the primary site just to confirm this is prostate adenocarcinoma. But now I think uh, because of the interaction with oncology, there's now a thought that, well, maybe we'll need some tissue downstream to do testing. And so kind of there's a little bit more consideration to maybe collecting more cores from the primary site or making sure there's a targeted biopsy to try to hit the kind of key lesion there. So I think that's an example of where the multidisciplinary clinics are kind of leading to practical changes that will help you downstream when you suddenly say, okay, I need tissue for testing. Is there a minimum number of cord that you expect your urologist to get? I know when it comes to things like colon cancer, we often say anything less than 12 lymph node dissection is inadequate. Is there a minimum number of core biopsies that you have your urologist go for? I would say at least two. The problem is that a, a one prostate biopsy core, you know, it's one millimeter in, in width, is very easily exhausted, even just for kind of clinical diagnostics. So, you know, two gives you a little bit more wiggle room. Of course, when you think about patients that are diagnosed with localized disease, there's often template biopsies or kind of, you know, some, 12 up to something like 36 different cores, right? So somewhere in between for a patient that's presenting with metastatic disease is, is probably okay. Um, but, but I think what we don't want to be doing is just taking one random biopsy of the primary site or even something, something that I do see historically that happened is a kind of just a working clinical diagnosis without even tissue collected at all. Um, which might happen for a patient with really high PSA and, and kind of bone lesions. To that point, I totally agree with Alex. I think it's super helpful to have that uh, discussion up front. And again, that can help result in adequate tissue. And a scenario that Alex mentioned where you don't have a tissue biopsy uh, is uh, not common. As Alex mentioned, it's, it's probably rare, but there are you know, some scenarios that patients may get admitted with a no diagnosis, a workup is being done, multiple bone meds are found, like a super scan scenario. Patients need treatment right away. PSA is like 500, a random number, and no other primary tumor is found. So in those scenarios, you may end up you know, with a rapid treatment initiation. But I think as Alex pointed out, the effort is uh, to have tissue uh, for diagnosis, which is usually essential in, in the vast majority of cases, and also having the opportunity to do what we discussed before, tumor somatic testing on the tumor tissue, which is very important uh, for risk stratification slash prognostication, but also treatment options, as we discussed, especially the disease evolves later to metastatic castration resistance, prostate cancer setting. And I, this discussion reminds me of bladder cancer. Sometimes people ask me, when do you do tumor somatic NGS uh, for urothelial carcinoma? And I say, at the time of diagnosis of metastatic disease, we should do that to have it available down the road. In prostate cancer, um, I think we move it earlier and earlier. I think germline testing, as um, Alex mentioned, is indicated now per guidelines, even in high-risk uh, localized prostate cancer and all metastatic. So germline testing is, I think, uh, probably across the board, is becoming a routine standard for the vast majority of patients. At least with uh, we should do it with high-risk localized and metastatic. And tumor somatic testing, is definitely very, very important and, and impact practice in CRPC setting metastatic. And I think down the road, Alex, tell me what do you think. We're moving towards an era 
in the future that patients may come in, they will get somatic and germline testing up front, and that may become a reality across tumor types. We're not there yet, but I think we're probably heading in that direction in the future. Yeah, that's right. I think we're really striving towards a model where we test patients at the earliest possible time point. I think if we talk about tissue testing for you know both somatic and germline alterations, it can it can take a couple of months to even source a tissue block, especially if they're in you know a different state or province or a different country. The patient's moved, and then the test itself can take several weeks, and maybe you get a failure at that point, so you need to kind of retest or test an alternative source of material. So uh, you really want uh, ideally months, um, you know, on the table. Um, and so I think for a patient that means at you know first metastatic progression or potentially you know if we're thinking about germline only testing then as petrol said uh, even in the high risk very high risk localized setting i couldn't agree more with everything that you guys have been talking about especially when we need more tissue when we tie in with somatic testing now we are lucky enough that liquid tissue testing also is very much available and gets us more faster diagnosis and quick turnaround time. Now, when talking about on progression versus first-line treatment options, Alex, this question is for you, and then moving on to Petros after that, where who is responsible from your perspective to get the tissue the first time for NGS? And Petros, do you test these patients on progression or rely on what the NGS was on the prior specimen? In terms of the triggering the tissue test, that's going to be the treating physician who's seeing the patient at that time. Um, now, sometimes that might actually be your, the urologist, especially if the, if the patient's in the Hawkins-sensitive setting. I think um, more commonly it's the oncologist. And then, you know, the same is true for liquid biopsy testing as well. So when we talk about liquid biopsy, what we're really talking about is testing circulating tumor DNA in the blood. Um, and that's largely representative of the metastatic lesions themselves. The key challenge with ctDNA testing is that you don't have a pathologist to look down the microscope and tell you there's tumor DNA here or there's not. But a rough guide is that when a patient is receiving treatment and responding to treatment, there'll be very low levels of ctDNA. So that's a bad time to do a liquid biopsy test if your goal is to genotype the cancer to look for mutations. The key times are kind of those intervening periods where disease is progressing, you haven't started a new line of treatment. And so that's why for in prostate cancer, we really think about at the time of castration-resistant progression, that's the really good point to trigger a liquid biopsy test. If you have, you know, a kind of questions about your tissue result or you couldn't get tissue data, then retesting at CRPC is a key, uh, a key opportunity. Great points by Alex. I think, uh, you know, it's interesting, you know, philosophically or practically, think about the tumor heterogeneity and how can we recapitulate that or analyze that in the clinical practice and translate that analysis into a clinically actionable result that can help patients' treatment. And I think the whole field of oncology is struggling with this. Alex is leading the field. And Personally, I, I see value uh, in both tumor tissue uh, analysis and circulating tumor DNA, especially if the assay is robust enough, validated, uh, because I think the pre-analytics and the analytical validity of an assay is very important. And, and not all the assays are created equal. We have to be very careful 
uh, how we interpret an assay. And this is a whole other discussion. Once a month, we have our precision tumor board. I learn a lot uh, and I'm technically an expert in the field, but I'm learning every time. Uh, I, I really admire, uh, seriously, I respect so much our friends and colleagues in community oncology where they have to uh, uh, treat so many different cancer types. This is amazing. But how difficult it is at the same time to delve into the details and nuances of a somatic tumor test uh, or even germline uh, testing uh, of a prostate cancer uh, patient, what the nuances are in this report. So overall, I would say uh, tumor tissue uh, is definitely something we use. And I think cDNA is becoming more and more important. Alex has done so much work on this. And in our center, we try to send both. Uh, and we send tumor tissue and cDNA. We have a PSA threshold to send a, a cDNA because, you know, uh, we think that the higher the PSA, the higher the chance to have yield detectability of cDNA, especially in the classical variety percent adenocarcinoma. Uh, so we have a threshold to trigger cDNA. We think that by doing both, we may capture more heterogeneity of disease and potentially additional findings. Uh, and we try to also do a germline uh, samples at the same time uh, after the patient consents. It's a study, uh, so we can we can analyze both uh, somatic and germline at the same time. The other thing I would say is if you have a very poor differentiated, uh, uh, undifferentiated, or you know like uh, neuroendocrine features, prostate cancer, you do not have much PSA. We may still collect uh, cDNA in those cases, even with lower PSA thresholds, because the the the, the disease is not that AR driven, and so the PSA may not be that high. Thank you for touching on those critical points. I'm going to actually switch gears. We touched on global oncology briefly. Alex, you're a practicing physician in Canada. Petros, Rohit, and I are here in the U.S. Part of the audience listening to this is in Europe or rest of the world. Any differences in clinical practices when it comes to biomarker testing in these different regions, Alex? There's uh, some important differences from jurisdiction to jurisdiction um, and even within certain regions. So, so I would say, depending where you are in the world, really um, review closely the guidelines, the clinical guidelines that are most suitable to your practice. So in the USA, that may be the NCCN guidelines. In Europe, that may be the ESMO uh, or EAU guidelines. Um, in Canada, we have our own Canadian Urologic Association guidelines. Um, and now where they differ is in the ideal timing of testing. So, so uh, you know, they may say only do testing in the CRPC setting or or maybe broader about earlier in disease. So they differ on the timing and they also differ on the genes that you should be testing. Now, as we touched on earlier, the key genes, BRCA2, BRCA1, ATM, they're almost always recommended to be tested. But it's those kind of rarer alterations that you may see in only one or two patients in 100. Um, they are kind of a little bit more variable from jurisdiction to jurisdiction based on kind of you know, economic uh, equations to understand the value of testing in, in different patient populations. I think the other thing that's important to recognize is that the actual mutation rates um, in these genes vary from region to region. In some populations, you can have BRCA2 mutations in at the germline level in 10% of patients. In others, it may be only, you know, one or 2%. So um, we don't necessarily have a complete a grasp of that because uh, not all populations have been equally studied or equally represented in, in varying databases. But yeah, I think really important is to, to understand your own local guidelines 
uh, and what they recommend and recognize that they may be changing uh, from year to year. And I want to stress the importance of everything that what you said, Alex, and uh, how important it is to test for these NGS uh, mutations, whether it's on liquid or solid tumor biopsy. We can be making headways with newer drugs and newer achievements with these the survival curves differentiating, but until unless we are utilizing this testing on our daily practices, this will be of no use. We have covered some critical data, including the pre-analytical phase errors and importance of right biomarker testing. Alex and Petros, thank you so much for joining us. To our listeners, keep an eye out for a similar discussion in lung and ovarian cancer space very soon. And we are the Oncology Brothers. Thank you so much for sharing these important messages. We've discussed a lot, and I take with me that there are various ways to optimize prostate cancer samples. If you liked this episode, then please look for the other episodes in this series coming soon on the Oncology Medical Conversation podcast under the account of Core2Ed Medical Education, where we discuss lung and ovarian cancer. If you're interested in finding out more about precision oncology, then please visit core2ed.com and select Oncology. If you like this podcast, then don't forget to rate this episode, subscribe to the channel, or inform your colleagues about it. Thank you for listening and see you next time. This podcast is an initiative of Core2Ed and developed by Precision Oncology Connect, a group of international experts working in the field of precision oncology. The views expressed are the personal opinions of the experts, and they do not necessarily represent the views of the experts' organizations or the rest of the Precision Oncology Connect group. For expert disclosures on any conflict of interest, please visit the Core2Ed website.